Well, good morning, everybody. It's a real uh, privilege to be with you in, in so many ways. Um, <clears throat> my wife and I moved here in 77, last century. <laughs> uh, so we've been here 45 years. Uh, we came here to pastor to take over a church in Mount Charleston. And as a matter of fact, my introduction to pastoring in Las Vegas came in the office upstairs with Pastor Mel Stewart. So I, my history kind of goes back to this church, and uh, I'm really uh, overjoyed to be with you again. <clears throat> I guess I should start by saying uh, I'm David Walker, and I approve this message. Uh, <clears throat> I've always wanted to try that during election season, but <clears throat> uh, you know, uh, my wife and I have been married uh, this year 52 years. And uh, <clears throat> that clap is for her much more than for me, believe me. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> we were boyfriend and girlfriend, I guess you could say, for five years before that. Uh, first time we went out on a date, I took her to her junior prom. She was a junior in high school. And um, through my younger brother, who was a classmate of her, uh, we went to this dance at her high school. So that was 1965. Uh, we, we've been together a long time. And uh, <clears throat> we were planning as we approached our 50th anniversary to do something my wife had always wanted to do, take a river cruise in Europe. So we're planning on that. It's going to be great. And then the pandemic hit. And so instead of going on a river cruise down the Rhine, we went to my backyard. And uh, that was our 50th anniversary. So that uh, officially, when you hear those statistics, you right away know I'm an old guy. I mean, it's just uh, a fact. Uh, it's an amazing thing when you discover you're the same age as old people. <laughs> you don't really think of yourself as old, but you look at somebody that's old and you go, oh, I went to high school with him. You, know, you sort of realize that you've arrived at that plateau in your life. So listen, I, I have a very uh, simple, in a way, simple task today. Um, that, though it's simple, it's, it's simple in the sense that it's a narrow focus. It's going to take the Holy Spirit to do what I believe God wants me to do. And so I want to invite you to pray with me right now and invite the Holy Spirit. My, my simple task is this. I want to exalt Jesus so much before you today that you fall in love with him all over again. And you walk away realizing, I didn't know that my love had grown a little bit cold. And now I see where God wants me to be. If that'll happen, then I will have accomplished my task. I, I just want to exalt Jesus. And I, I want you to come away remembering what he's done for you in some new and powerful ways. And uh, I, I believe this. I, I think that the love that we have between Jesus and us is the key to everything. It's the key to everything. Jesus, when he's talking about the end of time, he says that here's a problem. People's love is going to grow cold. And then out from that, you see all the other things that he predicted was going to happen, but it all stems from their love grow, grows cold. And uh, he admonishes the church in, a, in a, uh, the second chapter of Revelations, the church at Ephesus, 
you need to go back to your first love. And so I just want to help you today uh, recapture that love that you've had for Jesus. And I'm totally aware that, uh, humanly speaking, that's not really uh, possible to do. It's something that the Holy Spirit loves to do, though. So let's invite him, shall we? Father, we just uh, pause right now at the outset, and I invite you to send your Holy Spirit. Lord, you've already filled our room. You've filled our hearts today. You've been in our worship. You've been in our prayers. Father, you're here. We sense your presence. And, and Lord, I just pray now that you would respond to the hunger in the hearts of your people as they have had a hunger for more of you, a hunger for your presence, a hunger for the things that you alone can do. We have that hunger more so in these days than ever before. And I, I pray, Father, that you'll respond to the hunger of your people's hearts by sending your Holy Spirit and opening their heart and opening their understanding to see Jesus in a new light. We ask you to do that now this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Do you remember the old uh, movies where <clears throat> they would have a newspaper that kind of spins, then a headline, boom, you know, the mayor is arrested, <laughs> right, or whatever, boom, Citibank is robbed, right, so the old newspaper thing, and in a way, I kind of feel like we're living in that world, you know, southern border, Washington, D.C., Trump, Biden, you know, so it's stuff's coming at us hot and heavy, and uh, we're challenged, really, uh, to, to hear from God and stay on track with what He wants us to do in the middle of a bombardment all around us of information and catastrophe and danger and, you know, just all kinds of stuff going on, and in the middle of that, it's imperative for us to stay on track. Do what God's called us to do. Listen, just because things are difficult doesn't give us permission to change our assignment. We still have to do what he called us to do, even when things get difficult. And so uh, that was my challenge as I'm thinking about this. How do I, how do I stay on track? How do I stay on point? How, how do I continue to do what God's called me to do when it's harder? You know, things are more expensive. Uh, how, how do we do what he's called us to do when things are much more difficult? At the same time, we are in probably one of the most exciting times I've ever seen to live in. This is, this is an awesome time. God is doing tremendous things around the world, tremendous things in this city, partly through this church and others, as there is a, 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 just a heartfelt cry of this city that has gone up to the Lord. And I believe the Lord is in the process of answering that cry of the city through men and women that just love him and desire to serve him. So it's an amazing time to live in. And, uh, you know, I know that you would say amen to that, but in the middle of God wanting to answer the cry of the city, it, it comes with problems. There's difficulties. You know, how do we do what we are called to do. How, how do we meet the need? When you, you, you see the need compounded, and you think, how in the world do we do anything about that? It's greater than what we're capable of doing. 
And I was thinking about this, uh, preparing and remembered um, an event when I was in high school. I was on the basketball team. And uh, our basketball team was notorious for being no good. <laughs> it was not a very good team. Uh, had a great coach, didn't have very many good players. And I remember times when uh, the game would be close down toward the end, and uh, we were thinking, you know, hey, we might be able to pull this one out. And, uh, and we're kind of getting frantic out on the court, just really, you know, trying to work something, get something going. And the coach would call timeout and bring us back to the bench and go, listen, you're never going to win this game unless you do the fundamentals that we've been practicing. So get back in the game, and here's his words always, execute, execute, execute. And by that he meant, which we had, we had learned from the coaching and the practices, he meant execute the fundamentals. And he was a great coach for that. You know, uh, when you're defending a guy, get your feet in this position, your hands in that position. So uh, he was a great coach for that. And, and what he noted was that when the game was on the line, that a lot of times we'd forget the fundamentals and just scramble trying to win the game. And he'd wisely call timeout and say, look, get back to the fundamentals. Do the fundamentals. You have a chance here. If you don't do the fundamentals, you have no chance whatsoever. And so uh, in that same light, what I've noted is that there are some fundamentals to the Christian life. And if you do the fundamentals and do them well and do them often and do them consistently, then you're going to win. So here's what I've learned. This is my, you know, if you sum up my years, this is, this is it in a nutshell. If you do the fundamentals, you can win. If you don't do them, you won't. <laughs> Pretty simple. Yeah. You, you, you know, things can look good for you, but if you're not executing the fundamentals, eventually it's going to catch up with you, and you're not going to be a winner in the long run. So do those fundamentals. Now, it's right there as I was thinking about that, developing what I was going to say to you today. I was really tempted to go, well, here's three fundamentals or five or ten or fifty fundamentals of the Christian faith. And what I know is that you might write those things down, uh, but by <clears throat> Monday at the latest, you wouldn't remember any of them. So I decided not to give you any list of fundamentals, but to just focus on one thing that I think will make a difference. No matter how chaotic things get, no matter how confused you may feel in our world, no matter how, you, how lost you may feel, no matter how discouraged you may feel, there's one thing that will be an anchor to your soul even when you feel lost. And that one thing is what I want to talk to you about today. This is kind of a, a launch point then for uh, these, um, these points that I want to make. So here's number one. Don't let difficulties push you off purpose. A lot of what I'm going to say today is found in the Gospel of John. So if you want to stick your finger there, you can, you'll get ahead of the game. But in John 17, Jesus says this to his disciples. I have glorified you on the earth. I've finished the work which you've given me to do. Now, that's a perplexing verse in a way because he said this to his disciples in the upper room. He hadn't gone to the cross yet, hadn't died, hadn't been raised from the dead. So the work of salvation had not been accomplished at all. The work that we normally think of that Jesus came to earth to do was going to the cross, dying for your sins, and, uh, and, and that's the main thing. And certainly it is. But here Jesus is saying, I have finished the work which you gave me to do. When 
a lot of the work is still ahead of him in the hours to come. This was, you know, just hours before he was going to the garden and, and uh, captured there. So, so what did he, what's he referring to? Well, uh, in, in that same chapter, John 17, he says this, I have revealed to you, I revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. In John 17, 26, I have made you known to them. So, in other words, Jesus came not only to die for uh, forgiveness of our sins and to destroy the works of the devil and those things that we, we understand, but he also came to draw men and women to himself that would fulfill the mission. They would have that ongoing mission to fulfill what he had originally accomplished. And so, uh, what he's saying, I have finished, is I have gathered men. 15, he says this, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what the master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all things that I heard from my father, I've made known to you. Now, two verses we just read, he said, I've made you, father, known to them. So here he said, uh, I have made known to you all the things my father has given me to make known to you. And therefore, because you know these things and you've followed along with me, become my disciples, I'm no longer calling you a servant. I'm calling you a friend. I call you friends. Now, that again, that's an interesting statement to me because Jesus, you know, knows all things. And he knows that these guys that he's talking to, he says, you're my friends. In a few short hours, they're going to be flying into the wind. Peter's going to deny him three times. And so he knows that these guys that he's saying, you're my friends, are in fact going to betray him shortly. Nevertheless, he looks at them and says, I call you my friends. I, I don't have anybody else, right? I think it's what he's saying. You're my friends. I, I'm putting weight on you. My hope is in you. My confidence is, confidence is in you. You're my friends. And if, if you think about the, some verses here in, uh, in John 14, when I understood this thing about Jesus calling them friends, uh, it opened a passage of Scripture to me that I, I puzzled over for years. Do you ever have any Bible verses that you, you just know there's something there, but you, you just can't seem to get it, and you just wrestle with it and meditate on it sometimes for years before you know, you're sitting in a sermon or something, and it goes, bing, you go, ha-ha, there it is. Right? So this is how this was for me, John 14. In John 14, there's what I call five signed blank checks that Jesus gives his disciples. Here they are. In John 14, 13, he says, Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. John 14, 14, If you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. 15, 7, You will ask what you desire, and it will be done for you. 15, 16, Whatever you ask the Father in my name, that he may give you. John 16, 23, most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Oh, those are wonderful promises. We'd all say amen to that. But, uh, you know, just being honest, that has not been my experience. That whatever I ask for, that's what I get. Sometimes I do. But it certainly is not every time. And it certainly is not Whatever. So how do I look at those verses? I know they're true. They're, they're written in red. You know, this is Jesus' words. I know they're true. But my choice has been to read them and go, yeah, yeah, that's great. I wonder when that happens. <laughs> you know, how do I do that? 
and uh, you know, sort of be hopeful, but at the same time, you read that, and, you, and, and I think you're with, with me in this, that you'd say, that's not really my experience, that I get whatever I ask for. You, you know, we have a way of rationalizing that, don't we? I remember early on, I pray for somebody to be healed, and nothing would happen. We'd go, well, you know, hey, uh, go home, and, and maybe by morning, when you wake up in the morning, you may be totally healed. And I've seen that happen. But it's just a way of, of praying for something to happen, not seeing it happen, and then trying to rationalize maybe this. And then the big one was, you know, we'll all get to heaven, and in heaven we'll all be healed. Well, that's not what this verse is talking about. These verses are talking about right here on earth, let it be done on earth as it's done in heaven. That's what he's teaching his disciples. And he's trying to tell them, look, I'm calling you to have a relationship with the Father so that whatever you ask for, that's what you'll get. Anybody want to say, that's for me? I, I, I'd like to live there. Okay, now listen. Uh, I come from a background of people that say Amen in church to the sermon. Uh, <clears throat> uh, in fact, when you say man, two amazing things happen. One is the preacher thinks, well, these guys are really with me, and boy, he just preaches his heart out because you're saying amen. The second thing that happens is it shortens the length of the sermon. <laughs> okay, I get it. So, you know, I'll try to do my part of saying something amen-worthy, but I need you to talk with me, right? And, uh, you know, say amen. If you hear something that strikes you, go, yeah, that's for me. Amen, brother. All right, so listen. Anybody with me say, I want to live in that place where whatever I ask from the Father, I get that. Amen. Right? I mean, that's, that's common sense, right? I don't want to live in some low level of Christianity where I'm just sort of a nominal Christian and I just sort of, you know, go to church because it's my duty and, uh, and I, I pay my tithe so the church better take care of me because after all, it's like taxes. I pay taxes to the government. They better take care of me. So, you know, there's a lot of Christians that live like that and they explain away all the supernatural. They explain away all the miraculous. They explain away the power of God and then they wonder why their lives are a wreck. So I'm, I'm saying I want to hold the bar high. I want to hold the bar high and say, look, Jesus said this. And so if it's not my experience, something has to change. And I know it's not the word of God. It's forever established in heaven. Something has to change in me so that I will live in the reality of what Jesus is talking about. Good. So it, it finally hit me as I'm reading this. For years I've taught using these verses, and I say, these are five blank checks that Jesus gave to his followers. Then it hit me. You don't give blank checks to people you don't know. <laughs> you don't even give blank checks to people you do know. <laughs> uh, you, you, you don't give blank checks that are signed to, you know, in your life there might be a very small select few that you would do that, you give a signed blank check to. 
But here Jesus is giving essentially signed blank checks to his disciples saying, look, you cash these in. Whenever you're in need, you go to the Father, you say, Jesus gave me this check, and whatever you ask in my name, the Father's going to do for you because you're cashing that check. So who does he give that to? Well, you could read that and go, well, it's, uh, you know, his, his disciples. He's, it's, a, it's a very small group. And so then are you saying, somebody would reasonably ask this, are you saying then that, that only the select Christians get this? That there's a small group and the average Joe Christian doesn't really get to live in this? Uh, that's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that if you want to experience the reality of this, the reality of Jesus' uh, gift to you in these blank checks, you've got to get in this circle of trusted friends. You can't be just sort of living on the outside with one foot in the world and one foot in the church. You've got you to get in to the trusted circle of friends so that you can live in this reality. And so the, here's, here's really point number two. Jesus wants to include you in his circle of entrusted friends. He wants that for you. And so uh, how do you get into there? Now, I'll tell you this. Every time I study the Bible, every time I preach, I'm always thinking of this because this used to bug me when I was a young man. You hear this great sermon, and then you walk away and say, but how do I do that? How? And, and a lot of times the how was never answered. And so you could walk away and say, it's a great sermon. I just don't know what to do with it. Right? So I wrote something in the front page of my Bible that's been in there now for 40-some years. And it says this, exactly what do you expect to people to do with what you're about to say to them? Because <laughs> see, what I think is that the greatest sermon in the world is fairly worthless unless it changes your behavior or changes how you think. Jesus said this, look, if you hear my word but don't do it, then your life's on a shaky foundation. Storms are going to come and you're going to be wiped out. So the, the issue is not how much you know, but how much you're doing of the word of God. All right, so how do we do this? How do we get into the circle of Jesus' trusted friends? Well, we know from the Bible you can't work your way into it. You can't buy your way into it. You can't, you can't pray your way into it. You can't read your Bible into it. All the way that you get into uh, this circle of trusted friends, and that is to love him. Simple. You have to love him. <clears throat> now, it's simple to sound or to say it's in the Bible. You have to love him. But how do we do that? What does that look like? How do I know that I'm loving him enough to get in the circle? Rather just sort of, you know, I'm a fan of Jesus. <laughs> There's a difference between a, being a fan and loving him enough for him to trust you with his resources and his purposes. So how do you get into that? And that's, that's really uh, coming to the heart of the matter. Listen, in our world, love is defined as something that happens to you. Right? You're walking down the street and your eyes fell on her and bam, you fell in love. It was love at first sight. You had no control over it. It just happened to you. That's our world. That's not how the Bible defines love at all. See, in the, 
in the worldly manner, our, our love starts in our emotions and then bends our will. Right? I remember when I was in, I think it was eighth grade, I found out some girl liked me, and it just made me goofy. Because <laughs> it starts in your emotions and bends your will, makes you do stuff you wouldn't ordinarily do, because that's how our world looks at love. But listen, in the, in the biblical sense, love starts in your will. You make a decision to follow Jesus. And you know if you've been a Christian for a while, there's times when you don't feel the love, but you continue to make the decision. I know this about marriage. There's times when you don't feel the love, but you've made a decision to continue to love, and so you continue to love. And what happens is it starts in your will, and it will bend your emotions so that you feel it because you've made a choice to do it. And so it is in our relationship with the Lord. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Uh, look, so you, you made a decision to follow him. And, and f I don't believe that uh, we make a decision to just follow him sort of robotic. But, but we want a relationship with him uh, that, that alters our lives. Listen, love changes you. When you love somebody, you change how you, how you live your life. You know, being with the same woman now for these years, it's what, 57 years, I think? What I know is this, that love is a surrender of preferences. Think about that. You have to give up your preferences to stay together. And it only works if both people give up their preferences. And it's always amazing to me to see when people get married, it's always like a, a joining of opposites. One likes the thermostat at 72, the other likes it at 80. One likes the music loud, one likes it quiet. It's always a joining of opposites. And the only way you're going to make it work is you have to surrender your preferences. If I like it at 72 and she doesn't. I'm going to give up my 72. <laughs> That's the only way it's going to work. Now, the only way it will work continually is if I'm not the only one giving up my preferences. She has to give up hers as well. And then we've got something to go on, right? We can develop a relationship. But here's what I know. When I have a loving relationship with the Lord... I have to give up my preferences to him. Here's how I choose to live my life. And he says, look, that, that, that might be fine if you want to live at a low level, but, but I'm just assuming that you don't want to pay the high cost of low living, so I want you to come up with me and let me show you a better way to live. And we get a new set of preferences when we follow Jesus. Right? So um, if we're going to be a follower of Jesus, then we have to set our bar high Give up our rights. Boy, that's a, that's a tough thing in our world right now, isn't it? Give up your rights. <laughs> that's not popular. I mean, everybody around us is saying, I've got my rights. You can't do that to me. I've got my rights. Well, in a, in, in a biblical sense, a believer is the person that's saying, you know, I lost my rights a long time ago because of the sinfulness of my own life, but Jesus came and restored me, and now I am following a master who I love, and I've given up my preferences and given him the right to lead me. 
That, see, that, that's not a, a popular thing in, my, in a, our world, that, that I have a master. What? You have a what? I have a master. He tells me what to do, and I say, yes, sir. And you know what? I love it. I love it that he guides me, directs me, provides for me, takes care of me, tells me what to do. I want that. All right. So let's, let's look at some biblical definitions here. Which, by the way, can I say this to you? Um, one of the best tools for Bible study, in my opinion, is Noah Webster's 1828 Dictionary of the English Language. In all of your Bible study books, get this book. 1828 Dictionary of the English Language. You see, we're living in a day when language is changing. You know that, right? Marriages are being re redefined. Relationships, oh, it's all being redefined. There's so much else being redefined, it's hard to really picture it all. But get this 1828 Dictionary, because you'll find out what the definition of words as the Bible uses them classical definition, and for every word in this dictionary, Noah Webster used a Bible verse to illustrate how it's used. 1828 dictionary, got to get it, right? Okay, so think about love. <clears throat> Do you know, you know this, of course, the Bible commands you to love the Lord your God. It's not an option. Commands you to do that. Now, God wouldn't command us to do something that we can't do. What happens is he commands us to do things and gives us the ability to do what he commands us to do, right? So in, uh, in Matthew 22, Jesus is quoting this. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Well, let me just ask you right there, who's capable of that? My mind is often divided between busyness of our world and, you know, uh, watch the latest newscast and it's like I'm not thinking of God at all. I'm, you know, angry at somebody because look at what's happening, right? So our minds are fragmented and divided and yet Jesus said, here's a command in the Bible for you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And this, that's the first greatest commandment. The second one is like it, you'll love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus is responding to the questions of this young ruler, and he's saying, here's, here's the thing. You've got to do this. You've got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so we're, we're talking about one thing that you can do that's going to make a difference in your life. That one thing, according to Jesus, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And uh, that one thing I'm saying to you, I, I believe, is the the key to everything. You see this often in the Bible that where, where there's a relationship between people that, that God does things as a result of that unity. Psalm 133, that's where the blessing is, where brothers live together in unity. That's where, uh, if you read in the book of Acts, there's powerful things going on for the first few chapters, and it hits the point where there's a disagreement because the Grecian widow saying, hey, we're being left out of the distribution of food. The Hebrew widows are getting all the food. And from that time on, you don't see the church as powerful as it was in the first chapters. As soon as there's disagreement and disharmony, things begin to fall apart. And it's the enemy's strategy always to divide people. From the very beginning, 
divided Adam and Eve from God, divided Adam and Eve from each other, then divided their two children. You know, Cain kills 25% of the world's population <laughs> in, in one fell swoop, right? So the enemy's strategy is always to divide people and because when there's division, you will not accomplish the purposes of God. That's why Jesus says, listen, if I could just get two or three people to agree on anything, I'd show up for that. <laughs> I'd be there because I want to see that. And I'll do what you ask me to do if I can get a couple of you to agree. So this agreement, it's more than just a, that if I allow the Lord to do in my heart, that I will begin to love the Lord with all my heart and I'll begin to love my neighbor as myself. And it's out of that kind of unity that God begins to do uh, great things. Now, uh, one of the things that I see happening in our community, Pastor Randy and other pastors, leaders in our community, are, are knitting the community together in prayer and activity. Because it's out of that kind of unity comes a plan of God and a purpose of God that will be fulfilled for our community. Uh, up until this point, in the last few years when this has been going on, the, the churches of our community have been so fragmented that nothing would ever happen. But we are entering into a, a phase in our community where God can really do some phenomenal things because he's producing unity. So we have to ask the question, so how do I love the Lord with all my heart? Well, there's an answer in the Bible. And uh, that's found in 1 John 4.19. We love him because he first loved us. Now, th that's a nice statement, but um, just l listen to for a second. I, I think what John is saying, and John's the disciple, it's known as the love disciple. I think what he's saying is that there is something about the love of Jesus toward us that awakens in us what was once not there. We didn't know how to love him. We couldn't love him. We could have some human feelings toward him, but we didn't know how to love him as he deserves to be loved and as necessary to be loved for God to fulfill his purpose in our life and our world. But when he loved us, this love was so powerful that something woke up within us and we began to love him. We love him because he first loved us. And so that's why he's saying to his friends, you know, at the end of a person's life, there's even legal weight given to their last words. And so the last hours of Jesus' life, he's saying, I'm calling you friends. Now, this isn't casual acquaintances. These are men that have been through the grinder with him and are about to go through even more. But he knows that on the far side of their denial, there comes another moment when they are restored back to him and become true friends. And he can build his church on that. So understand what Jesus meant when he said friends. He said this to his disciples in the same setting. Greater love has no man than to lay his life down for his friends. Now laying his life down, that's, that's nice. It's sort of clinical. What he's talking about is what is right ahead of him, going to the cross. That's what he's talking about. And if you've, if you've ever seen the passion of the Christ, you know laying his life down was no simple little thing. See, here's the thing. If all Jesus had to do was die, he could have had a much more humane death than he had. A quick 
stab of the spear is done. Price is paid. Blood is shed. He's good to go. Why the beatings and the spitting and the beard plucked out and the whipping and, uh, you know, the crown of thorns and all that? He went through all of that and it had purpose and meaning to all of that. We understand from the scriptures that his sacrifice was completely effective because everything he went through paid for something. By his stripes were healed, the Bible says. So he couldn't just have a quick thrust of the spear. He, his body had to be striped and beaten and broken so that we who have beaten and broken bodies can have healing available to us. Isaiah 53 says he's bruised for our iniquities. You know what bruising is? Bruising is internal bleeding. It's because not all of our problems are external. So he's not only beaten for your physical healing, he's bruised internally, bleeding internally, because human beings have internal problems too. And he paid for that all at the same time as his, his body. Now, his sacrifice is completely effective. Just think about this. First of all, the Bible says it's for all men. He died for men of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. He died for you in that, in that group, right? And his, his sacrifice is totally effective. In, in the Revelations, it says they overcame him, speaking of Satan, uh, by the blood of the Lamb. There's a victorious life and living because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And so what we understand is that when Jesus died, once we were far from God, now we've been brought near. Once we were blind, but now the light of the gospel has shined into our eyes and we can see. And once we were taken captive by the devil and forced to do his will, but now the captive's chains, as we've sang today, have been broken and the prison doors open. He did that because you're his friend. I call you friends. I don't want to see my friends in prison. I don't want to see my friends in chains. I don't want to see my friends bound in uh, disease and, and bad habits and bad attitudes. And so I'm going to do what I need to do to pay the price for your freedom. His sacrifice, this, I, I, I love this about what Jesus did. The Bible spends a lot of time talking about his sacrifice and making sure that you see it's absolutely certain what he did. Rock solid. We've been purchased by the blood of Jesus. We, you know, we say it was signed in blood, an oath. It's signed in blood. We mean unbreakable. And, and here's what we mean. Um, he signed the deed with his atoning blood. He ever lives to make the promise good. Should all the hosts of hell march in to make a second claim, they all march out at the mention of his name. They all march out at the mention of his name. Absolutely certain, absolutely effective, absolutely for every man for all, all times. It is, it is uh, uh, effective every time it is applied. And so the Bible makes it very clear that he did that because he loved us. Greater love has no man than to lay his life down for his friends. He didn't want you to live in bondage. didn't want you to live in discouragement. didn't want you to live in uh, shame. He, he took all that so that you could be free. And it says, if you just love me with all your heart, well, how do I do that? Well, just understand my love for you because you love me because I loved you. That's what the Bible says. 
If I understand his love, if I learn more about his love for me, then there's something awakened in me uh, that will respond to the love of Jesus. And when that happens, then I begin to join that inner circle, the trusted circle of his friends, so that I can become uh, a holder of those signed blank checks. Now, uh, I want to pray for you this morning. You know, maybe like a lot of us in our world, you've been so beat upon by the things of our world that you haven't even really noticed that your love for the Lord has grown cold. You're just, you're just busy and harassed and, you know, beat by the uh, affairs of our world. And, and you, you know, it's not that you're not a Christian. You're still doing all the Christian stuff. But somehow, in the middle of all the stuff that's going on, our love for the Lord grows cold. And so, as I prayed about today, there's a, a, a couple of people that um, I, I want to pray for specifically. And the Lord showed me this, that there was a person that uh, in their car on the way here today, you said, I'm going to try this religion thing one more time. If something doesn't happen today, I'm out of here. If that's you, today's your day. God wants to meet with you today. And, and second is that there's a person here that routinely, beginning on Saturday, starts not feeling well, getting headaches on Saturday. And I, I want you to know that that's not an accident. The enemy likes to keep people out of church. And if that's the case for you today, um, I believe God wants to break that cycle. And, and finally, this one. <clears throat> you've been, you've been, uh, you're part of the church. You serve here. And, uh, and you've been feeling like you're just burning out. Uh, you're going through the motions, but it's like the passion of what you're doing was, is gone. And, uh, and Jesus wants to meet you today. You've been, you've been able to mask it. Nobody really even knows what you're feeling because you're able to mask that feeling. And you're even known as faithful, but inside you've just been crying for God's help. And I, I just want you to know that today's your day. God wants to meet you today. And so as we are... As we're closing this up, um, I, I want to just do a couple of things. Uh, first of all, if there's anybody here that I've, I've, I'm going to follow Jesus. Uh, I'm done living my life on my own terms. I've made a mess of it. I want to follow Jesus. And if that's the case for you, I just, again, want you to know today's your day. Jesus wants you to know how much he loves you and that he died for you. You don't have to carry the stuff you've been carrying. Today's your day. In just a minute, I'm going to invite you to come forward. You guys have prayer teams and altar workers. Yeah, so we'll have people up here that can, can pray with you. But I, I want to just um, tell you one other story, and then we'll be done. In fact, let me, let me have you stand, because we really are right to the end. Stand with me now. In the Old Testament, there is a, a law for servants. And basically, it's a person that sells themselves into bondage because they're in debt. So they have to sell themselves for seven years. Seventh year, they get to go free. And so six, week, six years, you labor for this person you've sold yourself to. But the seventh year, you get free. And so the Bible makes this provision that uh, in the seventh year, when you're looking at your freedom... It says in Deuteronomy 15, and if it happens that he, that's your servant, 
says to you, the master, I will not go away from you because he loves you and your house. Since he prospers with you, then you shall take an awl and thrust it through his ear to the door and he shall be your servant forever. So here's the picture. You're serving this guy for six years. Freedom's coming up. But it's been such a good experience that you say to your master, even though I could be free, I choose not to be free. And so your master goes, okay, and here, grab your ear, come over to the doorpost with me. And he takes a sharp awl, and he pierces it through your ear. And you know that's got to be a nasty, jagged hole. And, and, and from that point on, you belong to the master. And so I want you to do something with me just as we're closing. And then when we're done with this, which I'm about to do, then I'm going to invite, if you need prayer, to come forward. But I want you to reach up and grab your ear. Grab your right ear. I want you to squeeze it. Squeeze it hard so you feel a little bit of a sting. Because see, I... Uh, I want to bring you back to the doorpost. See, all of us at some point that are believers have said, I love my master. I'm not going to be free. I want to serve him. I love my master. I love his house. I've prospered here. I choose not to go free. And so... In that choice, you're choosing to be marked as a man or woman that belongs to the Master. You carry His mark. So as you've got your ear in your hand, squeeze it, squeeze it good, just so you can remember. I made a choice. I could be free. I could have my preferences. I could live my life any way I want to live it. But the reality is, I've learned that I have a Savior who loved me and gave His life for me. Took my pain, took my sorrow, took my sickness. Traded that in, gave me joy, gave me peace of mind, gave me a future. Gave me people to be part of, gave me a house. Brought me into His house and put my feet under His table. I'm, I'm His. So, just as you've said that in the past, I want you to reconfirm that to the Lord as you're pinching your earlobe. You're saying, Lord, I, I make that choice all over again. I make the choice. I love you. I love your house. I've prospered in this house. I don't want to be free. I want to be your servant. Take me again to the doorpost. Mark me as your man or your woman. I know you've had hardships. I know you've had difficulties. But if you just make this decision with your life, I'm going to be a follower of Jesus. He's my master. I'll take his mark. From that moment on, you come under the provision of the Master. Lord, I pray for my friends right now. Lord, who have decided again to love you. Decided again to serve you. 
Lord, I pray that in that decision, that reconfirmation of the decision that they've made, that there will come a reawakening of love for you in their hearts. That they can love you with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind. And love their neighbor as themselves, not only in the church, but out in the community. That we will be living disciples of the love that you gave for us to the world around us. Holy Spirit, I'm inviting you to do that right now. That we love you. We love Jesus because he first loved us. And as we've thought a little about what it means for him to love us, awaken again in us that love for our master. I thank you for that work in Jesus' name.